Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. So if you got a Bible, turn in your Bible to Revelation 21. And uh, as we start out, um, we'll read the scripture together, and then I'll have a few words to share with us this morning. It's great to be with you. It's great to be here as we celebrate Advent together, as uh, look out and see a few of our students are off uh, celebrating Christmas in their hometowns, a few new faces. So welcome if you're new here. Uh, we hope that you experience uh, a real sense of family and community at River's Edge. So let's read Revelation 21 together. And it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice in heaven proclaim, I heard a loud voice from the throne proclaim, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And we believe that. We believe these words are trustworthy and true. And this morning we're going to talk about this concept of a new heaven and a new earth. Because sometimes I think when we think of a new heaven and a new earth, we get things a little bit confused. The Bible has the ideas of heaven and earth as ways of talking about God's space and our space. And we can understand our space or earth, but often we find it difficult to conceive of what God's space looks like, what heaven is. And often people think heaven is completely separate from earth. If we were to envision these two spheres being completely separate, that, that's a common misunderstanding about what heaven is, especially from a biblical view. We might think that heaven is above, above the clouds, and the earth is below, and the purpose that we have to do in life is to try to get away from this earth because it's something bad, and it's something we need to escape because we need to be with God. We need to be where there's no more tears and no more sorrow and no more pain. But we lose sight of the fact that God has made this world, this earth for us, and he has made it to finally be our home. Tim Mackey in the Bible Project says the Bible gives us images of both heaven and earth, and they are different in their nature, but in the Bible they're not always separate. And that's why we see this overlap between heaven on the left and earth on the right. If we remember back to the beginning of Genesis, when this is well over a year ago now, when we started this year in the Bible, the first two chapters of Genesis talk about what it was like to be in the garden. If 
in the garden before sin came into the world, heaven and earth were completely in the same sphere. They were joined. They were together. Adam and Eve, God, humanity, together on a daily basis. Serving together, working together, joined together, ruling and reigning together. And then we know the story, sin came into the world, and suddenly things got separated. Suddenly things became convoluted in our understanding of what it was like to be with God. We tend to talk about heaven as a place we go to when we die. Not a place where we are expecting to understand what it means to be in God's presence once again with fullness. Because heaven and earth were once fully united, the Garden and even. And they were, when they were driven apart with sin, God has been, since the, the plan of Abraham, in this plan of redemption, bringing them back together. And from Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus to the coming of the Holy Spirit to when Jesus comes once again, God has been working this plan of redemption so that we can look forward to this fullness, the fullness of what it means to be in Christ, the fullness of what it means to see God, face to face. J.R. Packer says that Scripture points a pic- paints a picture of the new heaven and the new earth. And a picture that has reality at the heart of it, but it's a picture that in some ways is beyond our comprehension. We're not going to fully understand what it's like until we're in God's presence in that reality. Pictures are often like that. I don't know about you, but I love to see paintings. There's a local artist that has painted several watercolors for me. And every time I look at one, I see a different dimension of it, or I see a different aspect of it. And that picture holds more than I can comprehend at any one time. Packer goes on to say that those pictures are more profound, more wonderful. The things that we can be certain of about heaven is that we will be closer to Jesus than we've never been before in this world. And we will be surrounded by a transformed creation. We will be in that transformed new reality in resurrection bodies, modeled in some way on the resurrection body of our Lord Jesus. The same thing will happen to creation. It's brought to its completion when Christ returns, but only through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can we clearly see God's intention for this new heaven and this new earth. The resurrection is very important to understand because without the resurrection... There would be no Christianity. There'd be no followers of Jesus. There'd be no reason to follow him. Jesus would have either become forgotten or be some footnote in the long history of failed prophets in the history of Israel. But something had happened. 2,000 years ago, something happened. And within just a few weeks, these people, these followers of Jesus, were proclaiming the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Something had happened, and Jesus had been raised from the dead. You know, people talk all the time, I can't understand that. I mean, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that someone could come back to life once they're dead? I think a lot of the the Jews of that time were the same way. The disciples were mostly Jewish people. They had the same kind of understanding. Because for a Jewish person in the first century, no one would understand 
that someone could be resurrected without a whole host of things happening at the same time. It wasn't just a, a person. One person was going to come back to life. It was that these expectations that Israel had were all going to happen. This larger series of events, all of which were expected to happen at the same time. And here's a short list, or here's the checklist of what they were expecting. It had to include the defeat of the Romans. The subjugation of all the nations to Israel. The return of all the exiles. The restoration of Jerusalem. Which also meant the eradication of its current corrupt leadership. And we're still not done. The enthronement of a Davidic king, the amazing renewal and transformation of all creation, and then, of course, the resurrection of everyone. It's no wonder that none of the gospel narratives include an account of the disciples going to see if Jesus was resurrected. I mean, there, it says Peter and John raced to the tomb after they had been told that he was alive, but they didn't go to check. They didn't go to check to see if he was resurrected. And they didn't go to check because they didn't have a paradigm for that. They didn't understand that that would happen. In fact, they could look outside and see it clearly hasn't happened because all of the things that they were expecting, if someone was going to be resurrected, if the king was going to be enthroned, the Messiah that they were expecting to come was going to be put into his rightful place. All of those other things would happen. And they could look out the window and say, hey, nothing has changed. Nothing is different. Nor did they understand the language of after three days. Because as we've been talking about Revelation, after three days to them was a prophetic metaphor. It didn't mean tomorrow. It meant sometime in the future. Because it's not just that no Jew would believe him. It's more than that. It's that no first century Jew could even imagine anything like that happening. It was not part of their paradigm, not part of their horizon. You just don't have a resurrection in the middle of an unchanged world. So it seems to me that the only way to explain what happened, to explain the disciples' complete turnaround, is that however difficult we might find it, or however difficult some people might find it, that this actually did happen. And because it did, and we believe it did, everything is different. So what does the resurrection show? The resurrection first shows that God has vindicated Jesus. It says that God has said yes to Jesus and everything that he was about who he was, what his ministry was, what he said, what he did, and what he had done. There's that wonderful account of the disciples when Jesus suddenly appears in the upper room. You remember that? He's like walking through doors or just coming through doors that are locked. And there's a, there's a record of the gospel of, or the, there's a record of the disciple Thomas who makes this statement, and Thomas gets a bum rap, because you know, we know Thomas today as Doubting Thomas, right? He didn't believe. I think he was a lot more than that, actually. And, and sometimes we overlook this. It's common to talk about Thomas when the first resurrection encounters of Jesus are described, because, because he says, you know, why do you doubt? But think about Thomas from a first century Jew perspective. 
And Thomas has seen this Jesus resurrected. He, had, he knew he was crucified. He's seen this Jesus now alive, resurrection. And Thomas is thinking because if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then it means that all those mighty deeds and words that Jesus was engaged in, that he was acting out, that he was speaking as though he was actually Israel's God, all of those things were true. And what did Thomas do? What was his first response? He kneels before Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. This is a first century Jew who went to temple and proclaimed the Shema, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he's reliving the story of Israel when he says, my Lord and my God. That's astonishing in the first century. That a first century Jew would call a human God did not happen. And yet Thomas did. Thomas knew. Thomas knew who he was, what he, would, what he had done, and why he had come. So it's God's yes to Jesus, the resurrection in, but it's also God's yes to humanity. Because Jesus comes back with a body. That's huge. Could have come back as this like floating apparition, ghosty looking thing, like a like a vapor. But he didn't. Came back with a body. Came back with a body that he that he could eat food and the food didn't fall through his sandals. He had a real body. And so what that does is tell me that God cares about us as humans. He cares about his creation. He cares about material things in this world. It's not a ghost. He's real. We cannot be human without a body. It's a reality. We can't be human without a body. And the resurrection is the affirmation of the continuation of this body into the world to come. Now, some of us are hoping for a slightly modified body, maybe. I don't know. I'd like to think that Jesus was around 32, 33 when he was resurrected. I looked a lot different at 33 than I do now. So that'd be okay with me, right? We're going to get bodies. And if our resurrected bodies are physical, then we're, no, need to going to, we're going to need a physical place in which to exist. And so God cares about creation. The resurrection is God's affirmation of the goodness of creation. And if you like, Jesus' resurrection is what I kind of like to think of as our first glimpse of the world to come. That world to come is going to involve a new heaven and a new earth. And we know that creation, Scripture says, is God's temple. John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the, what? The world, the cosmos, the, his created, earth, the earth. That, that's the word that, that is in the Greek there. God loves his creation. God loves earth. 
Earth is not going to be destroyed. Earth is going to be renewed. It's going to be recreated. It's going to be made into something new and better. Creation is the temple. Human beings are God's image within it. You ever think of yourself as that way? That wherever you are on this earth, wherever you go, whoever you talk to, you are God's image in this temple, in this creation, on this earth. It's amazing. God loves his creation so much that he gave his son, his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would never perish, would actually be able to see and be and exist for eternity in this new creation. And God was not ever going to let this first set of snake-looking people that we talked about back in Genesis chapter 3 ruin his plan. And from the very beginning as we talked, from Genesis to the plan of redemption set in place with Abraham, to the covenant that was set into place, to the, the Davidic king that was set on the throne, to the prophetic words that have been spoken for centuries and centuries and centuries about what God was going to do, he did through Jesus. So committed to his creation is he that he would send his one and only son. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, does he say, our Father in heaven, may your kingdom go and take us with you when you go? No, what does he say? He says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, as one day it's going to be. When you make all things new. Paul says something similar in Romans Chapter 8. It says, creation groans waiting for its redemption. That redemption language is straight out of the Exodus, straight out of Israel's story. God redeeming his people. God redeeming his creation. And in Revelation, the saints, it says, depending on our view of the millennium, which we talked about two weeks ago, and if you don't understand that, go back and listen to the podcast because I don't have time to go through that now. But it says that the saints, God's people, will reign in his creation. Just like Adam and Eve, the original intentions in the garden, we will rule and reign with God on a recreated earth. The end of all things, the new Jerusalem does what? We just read that. It comes from heaven to earth. The new Jerusalem comes from heaven to earth, and now the dwelling of God is with humanity. Back with his people. This great acclamation at the end of Revelation, behold, it says, behold, behold! The dwelling of God is with humanity. God's back with us. I mean, that... That is good news. We are going nowhere. God, it seems, and heaven are coming to earth. That's exactly what Revelation says here. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Joined back together like those pictures we saw a while ago. 
like Revelation, the end of Revelation, talking about the, the, the creation, the new creation of the recreation and new creation of the world, just like Genesis 1 and 2. Matt shared with me this week this, uh, this list of parallels, and they're, they're, there's too many of them to go through, but it's amazing how there are so many parallels in the first two chapters of Genesis and the last couple of chapters of Revelation that there's, there's clearly bookends to what God has planned to create and recreate his order, his people, his plan, his purpose, of which all of us are a part of. The dwelling of God is with humanity. And you might be thinking, hang on. We, we read something about where it talks about the heaven and earth passing away. Do you remember what Paul said in one of his epistles? If anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. How many of you accepted Christ? Did you die? And God just recreated you, resurrected you? No, your old self died, right? It's another metaphor for what God is going to do. It's not that it's physically going to pass away. It's, it's going to be made new in the way that God intended it to be made in the first place. And I can't, for one, can't wait to see what this new creation will be like. A, new, a creation that has been set free from the bondage of decay and sin and death. And How, how many of you like coffee? Any coffee drinkers here? A few, that's good. I think coffee drinkers are maybe a little bit closer to the, the heavenly coffee shop than... Can you imagine what coffee tastes like in heaven? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How about that, you know, we have fruit juice here, but if we, you know, if we, put, if we ferment that for a while and let it age in a nice oak keg or something, can you imagine? I mean, Scripture actually talks about the finest and choicest of wines. Because all of our, all of our expectations, all of our understanding of creation will no longer be subjected to this, this decaying world that we're a part of. That's an amazing thing. So the resurrection is God's yes to Jesus, and because of him, because of Jesus, it's God's yes to humanity and therefore to his creation. And in this resurrection, it points to the promise of a cosmic shalom, this peace and a garden city. John Mark talks about that in his book with this plentiful river and peace for the healing of the nations. So what does that mean for us? It's a lot of words about what's going to happen in the future, right? But does that really have any effect on how we live today? I think the first thing that it means is that whatever the gospel is about, it's about life. It's about life. It's about God's life and resurrection life, abundant life that never ends. Today, here, now, in anticipation of this world to come, we can have this life. That's what the gospel is about. That's exactly John's point if you read his gospel. And unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's point, if you read his gospel, 
is that, because John, John hardly ever talks about the kingdom of God. Do you notice that? Why, why is that? I, I think because John knows that a non-Jewish audience won't really understand what the kingdom of God is all about. That's looking future. That's looking to the future. What God wants from you, Jesus says, more than 40 times in John's gospel, what, John, what God wants from you is that you would open your hands and accept eternal life. That you would receive the free gift that he gives. That you would experience that abundant life. That Jesus says, I have come to bring you life and to give it to you more abundantly than you have ever known. And I want to ask this question of us this morning because I think this is one of the applications we can hopefully walk away from this text with. And that is, is this how we come across to people around us? In our workplaces, in our cities and suburbs, when people bump up against us on a daily basis, when they meet a follower of Jesus, do they immediately think abundant life? Because that's what God expects. It doesn't matter where you are or who you are or what you do, because He has given us this abundant life. We ought to reflect that. Is that what your vision of God is like? What if holiness is not about keeping rules and a bunch of rules and regulations? What if holiness is actually a matter of whether I bring the life of God to somebody else? What if the mark of me being holy, of you being holy, of us being holy, is that people feel more alive after being with us than they did before? Something about her. I don't know what it is, but I want to know what she has. There's something about him. He, nothing seems to get to him. I want to know why, why his life seems different. Jesus offers this abundant life as a free gift, and he calls us to do the same. That's what we're called to be, citizens of heaven, citizens of heaven living in anticipation of this glorious coming kingdom. And it doesn't mean that we just sit around waiting for things to happen. Just like the incarnation, the resurrection, our following Jesus is meant to be lived out every day, every circumstance, every place we find ourselves. In the coffee shops, the schools, the parks, on the highways, in the workplaces, in the fields. The whole earth, it says, is the Lord's and the fullness of God is there. That's how we're meant to be living, in the light of that understanding. And of, as disciples of Jesus, we've always been about people keeping. Long history about Christian engagement in the world. A high, high view of women. First century view of women was not what it is today. And yet we have records of 2,000 years ago in the Bible in which those early Christian meetings, not only could women pray, but they could also prophesy, speak on behalf of God to his people. That, that didn't happen anywhere. That's transformation. Transformational relationships is what Christianity is about. It's what the Holy Spirit is about. A high view of sexuality. 
a high view of what it meant to be a person. A high view of slaves so that even slaves could become bishops, bishops in God's church. Protecting the weak, caring for the poor and the vulnerable. This is our heritage as people, as God's people, as the church, as, as the body that Matt talked about this morning. I worked for an organization that was founded over 150 years ago, years ago by some uh, Catholic, Catholic sisters from Toronto, Canada. And they went into places that we would not even think about going to today. They walked into tents filled with cholera to care for people that were actively dying. And many of them died. And why were they willing to do that? Because they understood what it meant to be a person of God. What They understood what it meant to be an image bearer of Jesus. They understood what it meant to be part of the kingdom and seeing the kingdom come wherever it was. In Washington and Oregon and Idaho and Montana and now around the world. That's the kind of thing that God wants us to kind of get inside us. You remember when we began this journey through the Bible last year? The fact that the whole biblical narrative starts with these two chapters in Genesis with the goodness of creation. And now we see in the last two chapters of the story, ending with the goodness of creation, that ought to be a, a giveaway that God cares about his creation. And the, the chapters in between, what we've been studying now for about 16, 17 months, the chapters in between means that we live in this world as God's world, God's created world. Hopeful for the future renewal of creation, but caring for it now as best we can while we wait. We don't wait for the future. We do things now. We act as Jesus would now. We do the things that God would want to see put in place now. There's people here today that are doing just that. But why is it that so many of us have trouble living this out Myself included. I think it comes back to the fact that we don't really understand what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And that's because we haven't understood how fundamental stories are to who we are as people. Because we live out of our stories. When I react, I'm reacting out of my story. When you react, you're reacting out of your story. When I show kindness, it's because of who I know myself to be on the basis of my story. We learn who we are by looking into the other people's faces around us. And we get the chance in Jesus to look at God's kindly face towards us. And the first words out of his mouth like the words to the woman caught in adultery, is, I do not condemn you. That's what Paul says in, in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to learn how to live out of Israel's story, out of God's story. 
We are now children of Abraham, called to be a blessing to the nations, a follower of Jesus, the servant king. That's one of the key things we've been trying to do over this past year of looking through this story in the Bible for at River's Edge. We're trying to infuse God's story into each of our lives so deeply that when something happens, we just instinctively, instinctively react with the character of God that's expressed in that story. Because that's who we know ourselves to be as followers of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I had some stuff happen early, early on in my story, long, long time ago, that, that spoke things into me that wasn't what God wanted me to think of. Wasn't what God wanted me to act out of or react out of. And sometimes I find it hard to see myself in the way God sees me. Changed, redeemed, transformed. And I thank God that I don't have to do that on my own. Because Jesus is very clear how this will happen. It's going to happen through life in the Spirit. This life comes through the Spirit, and that's what makes the difference. It did for Jesus, too you read through the gospel accounts it began with jesus baptism when the spirit of god came upon him it was that same spirit in whose power he came out of the desert it was that spirit in which he started his ministry he performed miracles he did all of these things the bible records in the power of the spirit the spirit of god and you can't even think about living the Christian life, I believe, to live as Jesus without being filled with the Spirit. That's the great promise of the New Testament. You could have your sins forgiven in the first century at the temple. You could go to the altar in the temple. You could have your sins forgiven. But what you didn't get was the transforming presence of God's Spirit freely poured into you. Do you remember when Jesus in John chapter 7, he goes, he's there on the, on the feast, and the last day of the feast it says, he stood up and he proclaimed in this loud voice that this was fulfilled in my presence. that out of you will flow rivers of living water? John says what? He says, by this he meant the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus' words. Do you want to live in a way that people see the glory of God on your face? Do you want to live a transformed life in the way that God intends us to live? Then ask the Holy Spirit to empower you. Ask for rivers of living water to flow through you. Let God figure out how it looks in your own life. I'm not asking you to do a thing or say a thing or be a thing or anything else. I'm just asking you to be transformed by the power of the Spirit so that God can do the transformation through you in other people's lives that only you will touch. Emily, there are people in your lives that only you can touch. Only you are the person that God will use to transform these people. John, I mean, I look around the room and I see each one of you a face that reflects the glory of God and God is asking you to be transformed. Be transformed by His Spirit and do just that. That's the gift. That's the great joy that just runs all the way through the New Testament. 
It's about God living out of me. It's about God living out of you. That's the great promise. Our sins are forgiven. We're, we're set free from the past. And with His Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, now in us, transforming us, ready to live into the future of whatever it looks like in this new heaven and this new earth. Paul says, you are what? You are being built into a holy temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. Mm. If we go back to that picture of heaven and earth, see that center part there, what, what used to be the two joined together, heaven and earth, Eden, the Garden of Eden overlapping, now slightly separated until God recreates them. In that center part, that's where, that's where temple was. That's where tabernacle was. That's where Jesus was. That's where the Holy Spirit is. That's where you are when you're filled with the Spirit because you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? And so the earth, the non, the earth that doesn't know Jesus is only going to find Jesus because of interacting and bumping up against you in that center spot. That's, that's it. That's what we have to look forward to. God's going to bring those two circles together again. And forever and ever and ever, for all eternity, we're going to be in His presence and we're going to enjoy His presence. But until then, we should be living in that center and trying to make that center spot bigger and bigger and bigger. And wherever you are and whatever you do, reflect the image of God the joy of God, the abundant life. And I promise you, people will respond. They've been responding for 2,000 years. And until Jesus comes back, they're going to respond again. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we, we marvel at your, your mission, your victorious mission. Just over the last 16 months, looking at at your plan of redemption and your plan of creation and your plan of salvation and people, ordinary people that you called into, into the story. People like Abraham. People like Isaac and Jacob. They, they were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, they are men and women who are used to tell your story so that we could be a part of that story today. No one could have had such a large plan, a huge plan, and see it come to pass but you. Lord, we look forward to the day when the whole of creation honors you. But we want to proclaim that we will not wait. We will not wait until that day. And we ask the Holy Spirit, transform us and fill us with your unlimited power to see your kingdom come in our families and in our neighborhoods and in Spokane and on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we want to enjoy intimacy with you in increasing measure, even as we await your return. And heaven and earth are once again made new. And help us, Lord, every day to see our part and play our part in the family of God in your great mission. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.